0: All right, so if you got your lift notes, you can get them ready. If you got your Bibles, you can open up. We're going to be primarily in Numbers chapter 13. I thought it would just be really fun right before Thanksgiving to give thanks for the 612 Mosaic Laws. So I'm just going to read them this morning, and we're going to practice just giving thanks for each one. Okay. Well, we are going to be in numbers, and it's a good one. I'm going to join my brother Ryan from last week in the topic of Thanksgiving and gratitude. He did a great job, and I want to... Join in on that theme, and we're probably going to spend another one on it. Because gratitude, when we understand it in the biblical context, is supernaturally powerful. And there's a lot on the line. In fact, what I will assert this morning that comes right out of the Bible is whether we choose, that's an important word, whether we choose to make gratitude or grumbling... A way of life may mean the difference between spiritual life and death. May mean the difference between that abundant life or a life of lack. The difference between spiritual vibrancy or despair. And I'm not trying to overstate the case. I'm trying to encapsulate what the Bible says about the true nature and power of gratitude and the, cons- and the toxic consequences of grumbling. Gratitude is not some, you know, trite little, oh, once in a while, once a Thanksgiving, you know, I'll do it. Sometimes I, I get bothered how gratitude is kind of put in this little category, like it's just a little Hallmark card. You know, just a nice little fluffy thing. Maybe try it once a year. Just try it once in a while. Kind of like the eye roll, you know. It's like when grandma sat you down and she's like, okay, everybody say something you're thankful for. (laughs) And every, you know, collective eye roll, right? It belongs in a Hallmark card. It's just fluff. No. Gratitude is a weapon of war against the daily attack of the enemy who's going to try to put a spiritual veil over you to keep you from living in, seeing, basking from the reality that you are enveloped in God's grace every moment of your life. And that there are great consequences in where we go in this daily battle. Last week, Ryan brought a definition of gratitude uh, from the Harvard Medical School. I really like. So I'm going to repeat it. And I really like it because it connects gratitude with grace. is what we're going to see in the Bible today. The word gratitude is derived from the Latin word gratia, which means grace. Graciousness or gratefulness, depending on the context. In some ways, gratitude encompasses all of these things. Gratitude is a thankful appreciation for what an individual receives, whether tangible or intangible, With gratitude, people acknowledge the goodness in their lives. In the process, people usually recognize that the source of that goodness lies at least partially outside of themselves. As a result, gratitude also helps people connect to something larger than themselves as individuals, whether to other people, nature, or a higher power, blah, blah, blah. Gratitude is rooted in grace. That's what we've got to see. Gratitude is rooted in recognizing the grace that is all around you already. So I like this Harvard definition because it affirms an absolutely fundamental aspect of the Christian worldview that is in many ways life or death, life or death, if we learn to carry this with us. The reality that every single good thing in life is a gift from God. That's got to become this like reflexive, just gut level reaction. If anything is, is, is good in your life, it's a gift from God. James 1, 16 and 17 says it like this. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good thing we have in life is a gift from God. We live and move and have our very being in God's grace. We are swimming in grace. We wake up in grace We go to sleep in grace. We live our day in grace. Life as a follower of Jesus is all about grace. It's all about everything in life that's good is a gift from our heavenly Father, bought for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's grace, undeserved goodness, and it's like a waterfall that's coming our way in every moment down to the very breath that's in our lungs. This is a gift I do not deserve, but Christ bought it on the cross. You wake up in the morning again, it's a gift I do not deserve, but Christ bought it on the on the cross and it's his joy to give it. He's not giving it stingily. It's my father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, Jesus says. It's all grace. Yes, we partner with God. Yes, our obedience to God matters. Yes, our stewardship with life matters. And God rewards and blesses those things. But the fundamental Christian worldview is even all of those things that, that have to do with us and our part and our actions, and it matters. All of that is still under this massive eternal umbrella that Christ built through his perfect life and death and resurrection. And it's called grace. Grace. Every good thing in life is a gift from God. Don't be deceived, James says, to start off that passage. Don't be deceived. If we don't live from the posture of gratitude that recognizes that every good thing in my life is a gift from God. I don't deserve it, but thank you for it. You're happy to give it. You're a good father who loves to give good gifts to those who ask and good gifts to even when we're not asking sometimes. You're that good. It's all a gracious gift. But if we don't feel it, recognize it, believe it, live from it, then we've been deceived. And we're living under a lie, James says. And that always has negative consequences. So I want to take us to this tragic passage, actually, in Numbers 13 and 14. In the story of the people of Israel, it's tragic because they are on the precipice of the promised land. God's heart as a good father, as a redeemer, as a savior, as a provider... It's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's ready to bring them into the promised land, fulfill the the promise, the inheritance that he made to the forefathers. Let's pick it up and see what happens. This is Numbers 13. It's a bit of a a long passage, so I'm not putting it up here. I'd rather just have you guys kind of soak it in as a story, hear the imagery, see the imagery of what's happening. There's just lots of rich imagery And we'll go from there. Numbers 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send one man, everyone a chief among them. So send the leaders of the people of the twelve tribes, essentially. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran according to the command of the Lord all of them who were heads of the people of Israel. goes on to all the names, among them Caleb and Joshua. On to 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go into the hill country and see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they dwell in are in camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor. Whether the trees, whether there are trees or not. And be of good courage and bring some fruit from the land. Now the time of the season was the first ripe grapes. verse 21. So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab near Labohamath. They went up into the Negev and came to the Hebron. Descendants of Anak were there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They went to all these places. 25, at the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying to the land. They came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people who had gathered in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation which, and showed them the fruit in the land. They told them, we came to the land which you sent us. This is verse 27. It flows with milk and honey, as God promised. And this is the fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. They dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along by the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, So let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able... To then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all of the people are of great height. We even saw the Nephilim. And we seemed like grasshoppers. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Oh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land just to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of people, and Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. They said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through it to spy out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us Into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land. For they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. So do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them. But the glory of the Lord appeared front of the tent and protected them. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I have done among them? Get in our minds here. There are two radically different responses To the exact same circumstances. That's a choice that you and I have every single day of life. This is one of the most tragic passages in the Bible. God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, where they had been for 400 years. This is the very, scholars call this, this is like the defining act of God creating the people of Israel, fulfilling the promises that they would be a covenant people. So he frees them from slavery in Egypt, brings them out into the wilderness, and sets up a covenant with them to be the apple of his eye, to be a nation like no other nation on earth who would have this covenant commitment from God Almighty. And the promise was there that he would lead them all the way in to a promised land. An inheritance that he had promised to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there comes a point where they lost it all. And it's right here in this passage. As it goes on in verse 26 of chapter 14. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me i have heard the grumblings of the people of israel which they grumble against me say to them as i live declares the lord what you have said in my hearing i will do to you your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled Against me, not one shall enter into the promised land where I swore I would make you dwell. That is one of the most tragic passages in the Bible. This is the very essence that the whole first five books of the Bible is leading towards. The promised land. I mean, all there, there are hundreds of years going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the first covenant that was made, the promise, the revelation of God. And then to Moses that I am Yahweh. I am absolute reality. I am that I am. You're not just following a little tribal deity. I am revealing myself to all of humanity. I am the one true God. And I've chosen you to be my people, to show that to the world to show my power, to show my glory, to show my grace, my goodness, my provision. And now, sadly, grumbling. The posture of grumbling toward God is, is sadly a summary of the people's posture towards God Almost from the moment that he freed them from Egypt. It was like they were looking to things for things to grumble about. What can we find that's not perfect in this situation so we can grumble? Oh, there's not enough food here. Oh, and back in Egypt we had this. Oh, so God provides manna. Oh, there's not enough water. Back in Egypt God provides water. Oh, there's not enough meat. Oh, oh we kind of got to walk around a lot. Oh, I'm tired. Oh, here's some sandals that don't wear out. Oh, they're big. On and on and on. To the point, I mean, this is not a fake story. These are people that were freed from slavery, and they grumbled to the point that they said, you know what, we want to go back to slavery. Let's elect a leader who will take us back into slavery. And at that point, God said, okay. You get what you want. He goes on to describe how the grumbling that was incessant was actually a symptom, an outward sign of an inward condition. And this is where it just gets deep. This is not a Hallmark card anymore. You can tell by the silence in the room, you know, we're not watching a Hallmark movie. God bless him, Captain Ken. Grumbling is the outward sign of an inward condition. Watch, as God spoke to their grumbling and about the consequences of not inheriting the promised land. This was his take. Numbers 14, 31. He said, it's the land that you have rejected. Think about that. So did God just take away the land? God's perspective is, this is the land that you have rejected over and over and over. And so God got to a point and say, okay, fine. You can have what you choose. This is the land that you rejected. In their grumbling, here's another way to put it, in their grumbling, this is how it goes deep, in their grumbling, incessantly, they were revealing a rejection of God's promises. That's where it gets deep for us. In their grumbling, they were actually revealing a rejection of the promises that God had made. That God had done so much out of the heart of a good father wanting to do freedom from slavery, make into a covenant people the apple of my eye, the only people in all the earth that would have, that would be called the people of God like this, take you into the promised land. And the incessant grumbling, the message to God is, we don't want it. God goes on to say in verse 32, so as for you, your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer from your faithlessness. That is a sissy translation. Faithlessness is the word zanut that has one literal meaning, and it's whoredom as in the prostitution of yourself through fornication. That wasn't making it into the hallmark translation of the Bible. God's perspective is that they are suffering from the chosen prostitution of their hearts to other things than God. From God's perspective, the grumbling in the wilderness was not just the, oh, come on, you forgot you're supposed to be happy a couple times a year. Give me thanks. It is a symptom that revealed that they had abandoned trust in God and his promises and had fornicated in their hearts with many other gods, even to the point where they're spiritually fornicating with Egypt. Saying, we would rather have Egypt than you, God. Wow. God takes gratitude and grumbling pretty seriously. That if we allow our minds to dwell on the negative, the broken, the lack, the imperfect, It will grow a toxic veil over our minds that impedes our ability to see the goodness of God that is all around us. And will impede the ability to hold on by faith to his promises. And thus unbelief grows and grumbling grows. And then there's a vicious cycle of just that darkness builds more darkness. It's a foothold that then becomes a stronghold and grumbling becomes toxic soil for unbelief to grow. That's what happened to the people of Israel in this tragic passage. But what's also shocking about it is that what the Israelites often grumbled about that revealed the faithlessness of their hearts, what they grumbled about was often true. And this is where it gets messy. It was true that they didn't have water. It was true they didn't have the food like Egypt. It was true that they had to wait for manna every day. It was true that their feet were getting blisters. It was true that the land was inhabited. It was true that the land had really big people Giants in the land. And it was true that they were, the Israelites were just grasshoppers compared to them. All of that was true. All of that was true. Yet they dwelled on those things to such a degree, it became a poison so they could no longer see. They could no longer trust in the character of God and have hope in his promises. The focusing on the lack, although true, had sucked out faith and hope from their hearts. So while they were true, they dwelled on them to such a degree, it became a deadly poison to faith. To where they would say things like this in 1331, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. In a way, that's true. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report out of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people we saw it are a great height. In a way, that's true. But God's perspective on that is 1411. How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? In in other words, in response to their, we're not able to do this. God's response is, and since when has it been about you anyway? Did you free yourself from slavery? Was it by your power and might that brought down ten plagues? Was it your power and might that opened the Red Sea? Was it your power and might that made manna appear out of nowhere? Since when is it about your strength? So while what they said was true, it was a demonstration that their heart was very far from God, his character and his promises. So grumbling. Is a failure. To recognize the grace. That is enveloping you. Grumbling is a failure to, to recognize. Or it's a lack. Excuse me. Failure. It, here we go. Grumbling. Is ultimately a sign. Of Unbelief. In the past, present, and future grace of God. Where in contrast, gratitude is demonstrating deep down a belief in the past, present, and future grace of God. Gratitude is demonstrating a recognition that you are enveloped by grace in every moment of your life. And it's your only hope. And it's the only reason there's anything good. And it's the only reason you have hope for the future. And so you see this wild contrast in this passage where the exact same circumstances yield a massively different response. And that's the choice that we have every day. The vast majority, unfortunately, of the Israelites chose to let their minds dwell on the problems, on the lack, on the brokenness, on the promises not yet fulfilled. And they dwelled there long enough that it breeded unbelief, forgetting what God had done, forgetting what God promised to do, resulting in grumbling. Caleb and Joshua, Moses, Aaron, and a few others, on the other hand, chose to focus their minds not on the size of the problem in front of them, not on the truth of the brokenness or the not yet, but to focus on what God had done the grace that's all around him, and the promises of what he will do. That's how Caleb can say, in such contrast to the others in 1330, he quieted the people and he said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. That is literally the exact opposite perspective of the Ten other people who were next to him and experienced the same exact thing. Joshua and Caleb are living from that James 117 posture that just is so deeply foundational. Everything good in life is a gift. We live dependent on God's grace. Not our power. That's how it's always been. That's how it'll always be. God's grace in our life has always been and will always be our true only hope. Personally, corporately, nationally, on the whole world. So we see in this story two wildly different responses by people that experience the same exact thing. One is grateful, hopeful, blessed, looking forward to the future. The other is hopeless, grumbling, despairing, wanting to go back to before God. And this story puts front and center the true life and death difference between what we, in our choice, focus on. Where we choose to dwell becomes our experienced reality. You see, the, those who are grumbling, they feel it, it's real. They have a case against God, and it's a good one. It is their experienced reality, and you can't convince them otherwise. And over here, with people that have experienced the exact same things in life, they're hopeful, they're blessed, they're full of faith, They trust God's character. They're looking forward to going and destroying enemies bigger than them. And they are confident it's going to happen. You can choose which one you want to be. You can fix your mind on the promises of God or the pain of the world. You can dwell on the bad things in this broken world or the good things of God's grace. You can train your mind to focus on the blessings in your life or the brokenness. Where are you allowing your mind to dwell? This will have direct effect on how you experience life with God. So as Amen, that's worth saying twice. Amen. As a Christian, we're going we're to close here. And you could be proud of me. I promised shorter sermons. As I was preparing this week, I cut down half of the message. And then finalizing this morning, I cut it down in half again. So <laughs> here we go. You're welcome. Happy Thanksgiving. You can be grateful. You have something to be grateful for, one thing at least. I want to close with how do we move this into practical life and then the next message is coming is all about how do we train our minds to dwell on the good when we see bad every day and it's not fake and I'm not trying to minimize the reality that life's painful, that we do live in a broken and fallen world and it hits us every day. So I'm not not trying to minimize that. But as we've seen today, God has a very different perspective on how to fight it. And I'm going to take us to a bunch of New Testament passages that I love because they really get into this mindset, actually being aggressive in your own mind, training yourself to dwell, to just live in the space of God's grace. And it takes training. And I love this kind of stuff. That's why, here we go. It's a whole other message. So I was like, no, you'll be at your least 1130. So I'm going to pause. But anytime you th- you see the Bible talking about something that's an aspect of training, we should get excited. Because as followers of Jesus, that is what the rest of our life is about. It's about getting trained to follow Jesus, getting trained to live like Jesus, getting trained to be like Jesus so that more of the victory of heaven that's already won is experienced in our life now. So we should see ourselves as the Padawans, the learners, the apprentices. That's why I love any of the movies that show the training. It's martial arts training. It's karate kid type stuff. It's Star Wars. God bless it. Anything that shows the process of training, that is discipleship. That's what discipleship means. It means apprentice. The literal word disciple is learner, apprentice, and not Western learner, by the way, like, oh, I get information. It's I have an apprentice, a rabbi who knows the ways that I don't know. Could be the ways of the force. It could be whatever. Whatever. Jesus is, the, I'm serious, don't laugh at me. It's the, it is the same exact perspective. It's the rabbi, Jesus, has a way of life that you and I don't know nearly as much about as he does. He has all the secrets. He has all the knowledge. He has all the power. And he wants to train all of us. That's why he says somewhere that when a disciple has been fully trained, he will be like his master. It's in the Bible, I promise. Jesus said it, I promise. It just wasn't in my notes, and so it's off in my head. That's Jesus' whole mission. Once you've made following him, become a beloved child of God, been saved, you're not done. You're just getting started. It's like you just put your white belt on. You've got a long way to go the rest of your life. So that's why Jesus says, when a disciple has been fully trained, you'll become like your master. So I get really excited about these training passages because I know that's, for the rest of my life, that's God's will for me. I want to take it really seriously. I want to be like a spiritual ninja. I want to have as much training as possible so that I go through life and breakthrough is on my heels. So that transformation and more of heaven is what's coming behind me. Because I'm learning to be like Jesus as I follow Jesus. So, that's the next message coming. I think you can tell I'm excited about it. That's what happens when I take a week off once in a while, by the way. Okay, so, (laughs) mental renewal by Tuesday night. I was and seriously I came home from life group and I stayed in the car cuz I got some revelation and I started dictating the message in the car and like an hour later Don comes out she's like are you okay what are you doing it's like leave me alone I'm hot I got the message it's coming Exactly Last verse Paul commands this to become a spiritual discipline That's training For you, as the apprentice of Jesus. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And we need to go a little deeper. The word think about literally means let your mind dwell. In other words, it is a choice. It is a training of the mind. It is a discipline. It's even a fight sometimes. What are you training your mind to dwell on? Where does your mind live? It, it lives somewhere. That's You can't escape that. And so Paul's talking about, as a Christian, a follower of Christ part of your inheritance, and God's going to power you to do it. His Holy Spirit's going to be with you, but there's many, many daily choices on your part to train your mind to dwell somewhere. And Paul's saying, here's where you dwell. And what is it? It's all these positive, hopeful things about who God is, God's character, God's promises. We can choose to focus Our minds. We can train them to dwell somewhere. You can choose to dwell on the pain of the world, the brokenness, the lack, what you don't have yet. And while it's real, it's deadly. We are made to dwell on the good things of God, the grace of God that's enveloping us, the character of God flowing towards us as a good father, the promises of God that are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are made to dwell. And it will dramatically change our experience of life. Where are we allowing and training our minds to dwell? That's a question to ponder this week, and we'll come back with some real specific uh, action battle plans next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that envelops us. And I pray that 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 picture would even just bless us. Holy Spirit, help us to see right now with clarity how it's like we're swimming in grace. Undeserved goodness is pouring our way. Every day we wake up in grace. It's like this, this bubble. Goodness, the goodness of God surrounds us. And we can be always confident that first and foremost because of what we have in Christ Jesus, the eternal salvation, the love of God that was lavished upon us that enables us to become children of God, that now every single blessing of heaven is ours in Christ, as Ephesians was 1 says, and nothing can take that away. We're swimming in it every day from now into eternity pray your Holy Spirit would bring a breakthrough this morning that helps us see that. If there are lies that veil that reality, I pray in Jesus' name those lies be broken once and for all. And when we wake up in the morning, our first thought is how we're swimming in grace. May we see it. May we feel it. May we, may we believe it. May we know it. May we start our day from that place of grace and that you're not even anywhere near done with the goodness that you want to pour out and bring breakthrough for more of your kingdom. May that help us be a people of gratitude, genuine gratitude, that forever on our lips is your praise, your thanks. Help us train our minds to dwell there for your glory, And so that your abundant life flows through us. Let's just take a quiet minute to ponder here. Just a question between you and God. We'll have the question up on the screen just if it would be helpful. But just between you and God, ponder the question of where are you allowing your mind to dwell? What are you training your mind to dwell on? Is it producing gratitude or grumbling? And again, church, just let me remind that our perspective is we have a good heavenly father. That anytime he reveals something that, that might be difficult, he's only revealing to heal. Because he wants more of his abundant goodness to be your experience of him in this life. So let's have courage. And if there's ways where he's showing us, wow, I'm letting my mind dwell on things that are not helpful, helpful. They're causing grumbling. Just admit it. Own it. Give it to the Lord. Ask him just to cut it out. Remove it. Ask him to help train you just to dwell on that which brings abundant life. And gives him praise for his grace that's in every moment. Let's just take a minute. Holy Spirit, we ask that you move in our hearts right now. Thank you, Lord, that you're cutting out just little cancerous lies of the enemy that he wants us to dwell on, to bring us down, to cloud our, our vision of who you truly are. And may the cross be that vision that just answers any question that ultimately is the answer. If we have any doubts, how good you are and how much you care. Just ask, Holy Spirit, do good work that sets us free right now. All right, thank you for your good work, Lord. And we just ask in the name of Jesus that you would seal these things and we know that more good is to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I will sing a new song. I will sing a new song. I will dance a new dance like David did.